Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Tiracia in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. In this edition, we continue our look at the webinar series Black Stories Matter. The series is an important look at how the media has covered Aboriginal stories over the last 45 years and asks the important question, has our media failed to represent Aboriginal people fairly? And is our media silencing Aboriginal voices? Our talk in this edition is titled From Media Silence to Media Sovereignty, Looking to the Future. The discussion was facilitated by UTS academic Amy Thomas and features Lorene Allum, Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian, and Ella Archibald-Binge, Indigenous Affairs reporter, Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the last of the four seminars in the Black Stories Matter series. Um, I will start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation on whose lands I live, work and learn. Um, As I'm hosting this on behalf of the Indigenous Land and Justice Hub Uh, Indigenous Land and Justice Research Hub at UTS. Uh, I would also like to acknowledge the Barongal people of the Darug Nation, the Bidjigal people and the Gamaygal people uh, upon whose ancestral lands UTS stands. I'd also like to pay respect to elders past and present and acknowledge them as traditional custodians of knowledge for these lands. So in today's seminar, From Media Silence to Media Sovereignty, Looking to the Future, we're going to focus on the media's relationship with Aboriginal concepts of self-determination and sovereignty, what is changing and what can change to facilitate the urgent shifts that we need in how Aboriginal stories are told in the media. And this obviously comes at a time when the Black Lives Matter movement around the globe is breaking open a whole number of conversations about dominant white perspectives and leadership across society. And we've seen that uh, reflected in discussions about the Australian media that we've explored um, over the series of our seminars. Um, So it gives me great pleasure um, to introduce our first speaker um, today. Um, Lorena Allum is from the Gamilaroi Iwalaroi peoples of Northwest Northwest New South Wales. She grew up listening to stories uh, of her family and cultural history and this love of stories and a fascination with storytellers led Lorena into journalism. Um, Lorena has worked at the ABC for nearly 30 years um, before she took on her current role as Indigenous Affairs Editor of The Guardian. Um, She's worked all across the country and presented and produced numerous radio shows, uh, in particular one of uh, my favourites, the former ABC show Hindsight. Um, She is most proud of her contribution to the Bringing Them Home inquiry into the separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families and the National Library's oral history project of the same name. 
So Lorena developed one of the case studies in the book when she examined the media reporting around the 1988 Barunga Statement. Um, so in 1988, you know, the 200th anniversary of Arthur Phillips' seizure of land, um, Aboriginal groups presented the then Prime Minister Bob Hawke with the Barunga Statement, which called um, for a treaty. So, Lorena, I'd like to ask you to speak now about your insights in that chapter on how the media understood and reported on the Barunga Statement and the notion of a treaty or treaties, the, the sort of political melee that followed that you cover in your chapter, and what has and hasn't changed since then, in your view? Thanks, Amy. Uh, it's nice to see you. Uh, like Amy, uh, I live and work on the land of the Gadigal people whose sovereignty was never ceded and I pay my respects to their ancestors and elders and I pay my respects to my ancestors and elders of the Camilleroy and Eulari nations of far northwest New South Wales. So as Amy said, my case study involved looking at the media coverage of the Barunga Statement in 1988, which I found was really a study of erasure unfolding in real time. So. The Barunga Statement was a, a really profound call for self-determination. It called for land rights, for compensation for dispossession, for the protection of sacred sites, for the return of human remains and for the, all the human rights that are afforded to us by international law. It sought a national elected body, national land rights, a recognition of customary law and the negotiation of a treaty. It was a very sophisticated and powerful statement of sovereignty and aspiration. But I found in the study that within days of its release, it had just become a source of conflict between the major political parties, the subject of a lot of opinion and misinterpretation. And it was really minimised and, and misrepresented by opinion makers and by the media at the time. And Aboriginal voices were all, blood, all but obliterated in the mainstream. But of course, Aboriginal media... Uh, was alive and very well at the time and so presented an almost parallel view of that whole um, era. The, the context for Barunga was 1988, which was a huge year, a, an important kind of milestone potentially, representing a, a potential turning point between First Nations and the Australian settler colonial state. So in January, thousands of Aboriginal people from all over the country came to Sydney to protest against the bicentennial. The Treaty 88 campaign was launched and in June of that year at Barunga, which is a, a, on Jarwin country, about 300 k's east of Catherine in the NT, the two big land councils gave the Prime Minister of the time, Bob Hawke, the Barunga Statement, an historic declaration of demands and aspirations. It had, that a lot of time and effort had been spent on its carefully worded statement and, and of course, the, the imagery, the art that surrounded it. Uh, Bob Hawke co-signed it and set a deadline for a treaty as the end of 1990. We all know that didn't happen. So um, the major obstacle was already, within days, there was this strident and very dramatic um, opposition by the hard right of the Liberal Party, in particular John Elliott, the president, and then opposition leader John Howard. There was this thing called the Free Enterprise Association, uh, members of which were graziers and cattlemen, mining executives and others. They took out a full-page ad in the Sydney Morning Herald to denounce the process of treaty making and to state facts like um, things like Aborigines have more legal rights than other citizens. So we can see, you know, that that's patently untrue, still untrue, um, but it was there that those that kind of alternate fact 
uh, that narrative began to um, be formed and adopted by the hard right. And a lot of that set the tone for conservative responses to our aspirations from 98 onwards and began to appear in the media without interrogation and it's still, you know, things that we still hear today. So when um, looking at the coverage of Barunga, it was an analogue era. There were three major newspapers, the Oz, the Herald, the Daily Telegraph, Oh, and the Mirror, of course. Um, and we looked at the four-day period immediately after Barunga was presented to Bob Hawke was only a very brief period, but the reportage moved really dramatically. We looked at who was quoted, um, how important the the article was, how, how prominent it was in the news cycle, what elements it reflected about us, whether we were given agency as fully rounded human beings or whether we were just stereotypes. And then it's important to look at it in the context of the media landscape at the time. Um, there was newspaper, there was print, and there was radio and TV. Um, the audiences of all of these were white and mainstream. Aboriginal people weren't ever really considered or catered to as consumers of media. But there were a few Indigenous print outlets like the Land Rights News, which was produced and is still produced by the Central and Northern Main Councils in the NT. And Aboriginal community radio was and is really strong. So Radio Redfern was broadcasting from Sydney during 88. It was a real beacon for everyone gathering to protest and really helped, you know, kick off the careers of a generation of Aboriginal media makers. Um, there was also in the mid-80s Karma Radio, Tiba in the Top End, Saima in the Torres Strait, Galari in Broome, Amiwara in South Australia, among many others. We had Walpuri Media, Imparja TV and Karma Production. So Aboriginal media at that time occupied a very different space and served a very different but important purpose to present our voices to us. We were talking to ourselves in our languages uh, about issues that mattered to us. And in a sense, there were really parallel media landscapes operating then in 1988. But it's due to those Aboriginal media makers that the voices of that time survived the era because so few of them were, were in the mainstream. So in terms of the Barunga coverage, like I said, the, the, it shifted very quickly within days to, be, to go from what were the interests and demands of those people gathered at Barunga to the impact on politics in Canberra. Um, and what, I, what struck me was while photos weren't really a part of our analysis, there was one on the front page of the Herald that really struck me because it shows Gullaroy Unipingu, then chair of the Northern Land Council, standing above, he's painted in full ceremonial um, gear. And so he's standing above Bob Hawke, who's sitting cross-legged on the ground. He's handing him what the caption of the photo says is a bark painting. It's In fact, it's the Barunga Statement, and it's just struck me as really symbolic of the kind of coverage that was made at the time, and that this there was this hugely significant artefact that Aboriginal people had spent a lot of time and effort and thought and care in creating, and it, it is kind of minimised in such a way that it's, that it's a bark painting, when we know, of course, that it was a, a statement of law, and so much more than that. Um, and the, the, the whole exchange is framed as this sort of friendly exchange of art, um, which I thought was symbolic of the coverage of Aboriginal affairs at the time and still, you know, is present in a lot of the coverage we see today. So 
in in that coverage, Aboriginal people are we're, we're either cultural and ceremonial people from the bush who may be even a bit naive or idealistic about our chances of affecting change, or we are the angry radicals who are willing to engage with the enemies of the West. Because part of the coverage at the time also was that Michael Mansell and a group of the um, a group of people were heading to Libya to talk to Colonel Gaddafi, and the media considered this to be you know scandalous. So, but in the in the end, I think our our, our interests we become a quite colourful backdrop for a political drama that goes on in Canberra, and Bob Hawke has become the target. So. He's raised expectations too high with this promise of a treaty. Nobody's going to make it easy for him, including the media. And so the, the narrative is one of conflict rather than discourse. And very quickly, um, the issues become a fight between the, the right wing of the Liberal Party and Bob Hawke. And Barunga itself, the message of it, the meaning of it, the intention of it is very quickly sort of buried under this very... You know the, the sort of cut and thrust of daily politics in Canberra, um, and and a lot of the opinion about it at the time is white politicians, white journalists, white opinion leaders who don't go back to any of the leadership, the Aboriginal leadership of the of, at the time. No one is quoted at length. Uh, we we become the Indigenous or the Aborigines. Uh, we're kind of silenced in a way about something that is so fundamentally important to us as people. And, um, you know, so we, we very quickly have very little agency by day two. Um, but, of course, Indigenous media is operating in a very different way. Um, firstly, we're speaking to Aboriginal audiences and the conversation is very clearly one of uh, a process of negotiation, a kind of resetting of the relationship with white Australia and it's a long game. People aren't talking about this as just a couple of days of argument in Canberra. This is a this is a long-term um, battle that people are, are fighting. Indigenous writers show a real understanding of constitutional law and the functions of government. Uh, people are debating which sections of the constitution to amend and, and what form of language that amendment might take. There's a strong historical understanding of the context of Barunga. And so, and even, you know, in the, the mainstream, Michael Mansell is portrayed as this dangerous radical, but in Indigenous coverage at the time, there's a, there's a really respectful debate among all parties about various approaches to progress, whether it's the Treaty 88 campaign or the message of Barunga. Um, Indigenous media is capable of presenting these sometimes competing ideas in a really... Uh, uh, knowledgeable way. There's, there aren't the sort of ad hominem attacks that you see in the kind of cut and thrust of Canberra journalism. And another thing, the key thing that struck me about it was that Land Rights News had been going for quite a while by then and it had a national circulation and subscription base and it quotes the Aboriginal leadership extensively. So it, it wouldn't have been impossible for mainstream newspapers to find those public statements and reproduce them. It just seemed to me that the uh, willingness or interest just wasn't there. So I think Barunga, we, we know the significance of it now, but the mainstream at the time within the space of a few days had just turned it into a political football and, and, and the more extreme views of the right began appearing that we, we still hear today. Um, and I think the effect of that has diminishes Aboriginal self-determination, obviously, but it also gives white Australia this, the opportunity to dismiss it as a kind of 
just another argument in Canberra about which they're confused and they certainly aren't definitely uninformed. So very few people understood what Barunga was. The media didn't really take time to explain it. Um, it just ends up being another drama of unresolved Indigenous affairs. And, and, and to consumers of the media, it always seems that those uh, matters are difficult and confusing and some sort of battleground. When, of course, the battleground is manufactured in Canberra. It certainly wasn't a battleground, you know, out, out at Barunga. At the same time, Indigenous narratives are, are quite reasonable and thoughtful. They're concerned with explaining a unified message or a variety of messages to their constituents. Um, you know, the, the one of the key differences between now and then is that there were no, the, the kind of the, the barrage of opinion we see in mainstream media now wasn't there. So there weren't any think pieces written. There was no historical context. There were no follow-up questions. It, it we, we were silenced uh, very wholly and, and the language was appalling. You know, we were described as detribalized, as scattered, as doomed and voiceless. These are actual quotes from the from the coverage at the time. So it made me think about Yothi Indi's song Treaty where they, they sing about promises disappearing like writing in the sand and certainly 1988 was very much a, a, a perfect example of that in the mainstream media. It took... Uh, four days for the Barunga statement to um, to just evaporate. Um, certainly not from our perspective, but certainly in the mainstream media, it, it stopped being of interest very, very quickly, depressingly quickly. Um, one of the, the the significant changes from that area is that that Aboriginal media has grown stronger. Uh, we have um, you know so many journalists now working in the mainstream and in Aboriginal media in television, radio, uh, in newspapers and online. So that I, I'm really heartened and proud to see that Aboriginal media um, has powered on regardless of the way the mainstream has has really failed us. So Ella Archibald Binge is a proud descendant of the Gamilaroi people of northwestern New South Wales. She began her journalism career in regional newspapers uh, before spending around six years reporting for NITV and SBS. Um, she is now uh, the Indigenous Affairs reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, um, where she spearheads the Dalringi Project, uh, which documents the lives of First Nations people through a series of news, features and multimedia with the support of the Judith Nielsen Institute. Um, Ella, I've followed your work on Aboriginal uh, justice most recently um, and deaths in custody, and I think it's it's quite clear that you as a journalist are taking the time and the space to do, you know, the kind of long-form reporting on these issues that we don't often see, um, very much focused on centering Aboriginal voices in stories that concern them. And I think this seems in contrast to what we often see and what Sam Grant called when he, he spoke um, in one of our seminars the drive towards crisis and conflict in the media um, and that your work perhaps is, is more in line with the, the concept of, of truth-telling and you know, patient um, exploration and explanation that, that Anne-Marie outlined. I'd like it if you could um, share with us some of your methods as a journalist and the work that you've undertaken um, and the challenges that you face uh, in doing this in the media landscape. 
Yeah, thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me on. Um, just like to start by paying my respects to the Camaragal people on whose land I've been living and working for the last few months. Um, as you said, I'm a descendant of the Camilleroy people on my dad's side um, from northwest New South Wales. Um, and yeah, so about a, almost a year ago, um, the Herald and the Age hired myself and a photographer, uh, Rep Wyman, who's a Palawa man who actually grew up in Queensland uh, like me, um, for a new project that was focused on, the, on documenting the lives of First Nations people. Um, so we had a pretty broad brief to start off with. It was, as you mentioned, funded by the Judith Nelson Institute, which gave us a really unique chance to do some travelling, to get out remote and regional while we could, um, and to spend a, a decent amount of time in those communities, which is something that is, is rare these days. Um, so we kind of, um, from the outset, we sort of sat down and thought, okay, what do we want this project to do? What do we want it to look like? Um, and I think what we were really keen to do was um, to go a bit deeper on some of those recurring issues that we see pop up every year to provide some more context um, around those issues and to put a face to some of the statistics that we hear um, quite often. So we came up with, um, yeah, the Dalaringi project. So we um, came up with that language word uh, with the help of the Metro Aboriginal Land Council. So we, that's... Um, it's in the language of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and it means ours, yours and everyone's. And we thought we thought that was fitting because we wanted to really highlight that all Australians should be um, celebrating Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. And by the same token, the issues affecting First Nations people should be something that all Australians are really invested in um, and, and you know, caring about. So that's kind of um, what we set out to do. Um, I guess in terms of our approach to storytelling, it's something that I really have drawn on the knowledge that I've picked up from NITV, and I know that I, I wouldn't be the journalist I am without that really valuable um, training that I got there. So, yeah, it's been about six years with NITV and SBS, um, and that gave me a really strong grounding. So I guess some of the things that we're always really mindful of in, in the way we approach a story is, um, as we've already spoken about, really prioritising um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices. Um, and speaking to a range of people. So you get, yes, your prominent commentators who are going to pop up from time to time, but being really mindful of speaking to people who don't get a lot of media attention, um, and particularly in those more regional areas as well. Um, and also just the way that you frame stories from the outset. So, um, you know, the last thing that you want is to, you know, jet into a community, spend there, stay there for a couple of days and do a story that's just going to make exacerbate existing issues so we, we want it to be solutions driven you know every community's got local people that are working really hard to to make positive change so we we really wanted to to get those stories across and to provide the the context around the history or the past policies that have um, influenced certain communities you know where, wherever that was appropriate to um, foster that understanding as well and focus on you know why things are happening not just what's happening but looking beyond that deeper, you know, under the surface, why are these things happening? And as I touched on, just spending as much time as you can in the community because, you know, it's it's really tricky to just rock up and, and expect someone to pour their heart out to you and why would they? Um, so, yeah, we, we really tried to, to spend as much time with people as we could. Um, so if I guess I'll go through a couple of examples of stories that we've done throughout the year, but one of the first things we looked at was January 26th. 
Um, so we were really keen to bring a new perspective to, to this whole discussion around changing the date of Australia Day. Um, so how we went about that, we ended up going out to Moree, um, just spoken to a few of my family members actually, um, but basically there's a massacre site just um, out of Moree in northwestern New South Wales and a massacre actually occurred on January 26 um, in 1838 known as the Waterloo Creek Massacre. So we went back to this, that site um, with some of the descendants of, of the people who had, who had died there and I, I think, you know, that story was really a microcosm of um, the whole issue because, you know, in, in the same park in Moree, in the morning they had the, the barbecue and the um, celebrations of Australia Day, citizenship ceremonies, and then literally as they're packing up the chairs from that event, this morning procession is coming through town and they, you know, are setting up this whole different event to commemorate the, the loss of, of their loved ones um, in this horrific way. So, um, yeah, I think it was just a... A different. I think it really highlighted why so many Aboriginal people don't feel comfortable celebrating on that day, uh, and to see that story on the front page, um, I think yeah, I think it just really added something to to the media coverage that comes up every time in, um, every time that year, every time that rolls around. Um, so I guess and one of the next ones um, that we looked at was closing the gap. So again, we wanted to come at it from a, a sort of different angle. Um, and look beyond those statistics. So uh, Rhett and I went up to Lockhart River in far north Queensland, uh, quite a very small, um, quite remote community. And we wanted to really look at, okay, what, what does this strategy mean to, to people on the ground up there and how has it achieved anything, you know, for these people's lives? Um, and there were a few challenges around that. So uh, initially, we'd been in conversations with the local mayor and he was really keen to show us around, but there was a bit of a mix-up with uh, the, the timings and the dates. So it happened that he actually was in Brizzy for um, some other events that he absolutely couldn't um, get out of for most, pretty much the entire week we were there. So we ended up having kind of a really brief, um, quick interview while he got off the plane and we were about to get on the plane. So that was made things a bit interesting for us because we were um, relying on him to kind of um, show us around, I suppose, and be a bit of a guide for us. And um, understandably, for reasons that we've <laughs> touched on, you know, in a lot of detail today, there's this huge mistrust in, in some of these communities, especially for the mainstream media. So that's definitely a difference I've noticed when you rock up and you're from NITV, that's a brand people recognise and you say, you know, really trust that Aboriginal media. But um, rocking up and saying you're from the Sydney Morning Herald in a place you know, up on the tip of Queensland, it's just, it doesn't carry the same weight as it does when you're working in, in you know, the, the cities. So we had to really work to to win the trust of that community. And we were really lucky to have um, nearly five whole days up there to kind of really spend some time with people just to sit with them, tell them what we were all about, show them that, you know, we weren't there to, to take advantage of them because they had told us that there were instances in the past where, um, you know, mainstream news channels had flown in for a particular story, said they were doing one story that was a quite, you know, positive uplifting piece and then they've ended up uh, misconstruing some of the, the comments they got on camera and using it for a whole other story. So things like that that really, um, yeah, make it difficult to, to really get, build that trust in a, in a short space of time to be able to tell that story in the right way, but um, really thankful that the community did trust us and we were able to get into a couple of um, the different agencies to, to 
yeah, get a good sense of um, what the closing the gap strategy had or hadn't achieved. And in this case, it was, you know, they this is a community that's been really proactive at identifying the problems and the solutions for a long time and um, generally haven't had the, the government backing to to create, to make those, bring those solutions to life in a sustainable way. So again, um, just it was just great to see that on the front page of the Herald. It got great coverage in the Age as well. Um, and I think that it really humanised a story that, that can often just get bogged down in statistics and the political rhetoric um, that we hear year on year. Um, and then just lastly, so obviously have to talk about Black Lives Matter. Um, it's been a massive issue. It's got a lot of coverage, which has been great to see. Um, and for us, again, we wanted to find um, examples of what, how this plays out in everyday life for Aboriginal people. Um, got a lot of responses to some previous stories um, from the Northern Rivers area in New South Wales. So we headed up there. We spent a week, again, just lucky to have the chance to spend that good amount of time up in, in some various communities up there. So we were looking at um, how those interactions play out between Aboriginal people in various aspects of um, the justice system. So looking at police, the court system and the prison system. Um, and again, I think that just really put some faces to that to this issue um, and added another layer that, um, you know, there's been some great reporting around this, but I think it's just been part of part of a whole heap of reporting that's that's shown why this really is an issue here in Australia and, and why people should be concerned about it and, you know, how long this has been going on and, and that we've seen similar movements before and yet, you know, not a lot has changed. You've been listening to an edited version of Black Stories Matter, a four-part series from Indigenous Land and Justice Research Hub, Centre for the Advancement of Indigenous Knowledge and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at UTS. And UTS academic Amy Thomas spoke with Lorena Allen, Indigenous Affairs Editor for The Guardian, and Ella Archibald-Binge, Indigenous Affairs Reporter for The City Morning Herald and The Age. And thanks to Impact Studios for their production and sharing of the audio. And thanks for listening to For the State. This edition was recorded at the studios of Tourist and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Forfa State is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. And make sure you subscribe to Forfa State on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is State AU. My name's Anthony Dockrell and thanks for listening.